Welcome back to Dare to Feel. I'm your host, Alexandra Roxo, creative artist, best-selling author of Fuck Like a Goddess, transformational and spiritual mentor and coach. This series is based on my book, Dare to Feel. In each episode, we'll deepen into topics around intimacy, relationship, spirituality, healing, and beyond. In today's episode, we're speaking with Tracy Stanley about Tantra, rest, rituals, pouring our hearts and stories into our spiritual practice, and having the courage to say to life, take from me all that is not free. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. So I am very excited to have Tracy Stanley with us today. Tracy Stanley is the author of the best-selling book, Radiant Rest, Yoga Nidra for Deep Relaxation and Awakened Clarity, and the forthcoming The Luminous Self, Sacred Yogic Practices and Rituals to Remember Who You Are, published October 2023 by Shambhala Publications. Tracy is the founder of Empowered Life Circle, a sacred community and portal of practices, rituals, and tantric teachings inspired by more than 20 years of study in Sri Vidya Tantra and the teachings of the Himalayan masters. As a post-lineage teacher, Tracy is devoted to sharing the wisdom of Yoga Nidra, rest, meditation, self-inquiry, nature as a teacher, and ancestor reverence. Tracy is gifted in illuminating the magic and power found in liminal space and weaving devotion and practice into daily life. Thank you for all of that. <laughs> Thank you so that much for reading so my good. bio. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm a yes to all of that. <laughs> Nature's teacher, check. Ancestor reverence, check. Um, devotion and practice and daily life, check. Mm. It's lovely to have you here and to have experienced some of your work by reading your book. I feel like I know you, which is a thing that people say to me sometimes and feels like kind of weird, but as an author and a writer, I think that's what we do is we let people know us in a way, many mm. people. And, um, one time I, w- I was thinking how intimate it is that people take our stories and words like into their bed and they're holding it close to their heart and, um, intaking our gifts, our essence, right. As, as writers. And so just feeling what called you to the path of sharing your deep trials, tribulations, your spiritual journey, sharing that publicly. I'm so curious, um, Mm. how you made that leap, which from wherever you were before to, I am going to make myself available in this way intimately to others. Mm. Thank you so much for asking that question. Um, You know, I've always been a creative person from being very little. Um, And my creativity, because I was so shy and introverted and scared, 
was always um, something that I gave to other people and I kind of hid in the shadows. So my previous job, I was a Hollywood producer and development executive. And so lots of my creativity was going to help to bolster other people. And part of what I noticed during that journey was that the creativity wasn't always used in a way to uplift everyone, right? And which is one of the reasons why I left the business. And as I started to share more in classes and then share a little bit in Radiant Rest about how I cultivated a deep relationship with rest, this next book really felt like I wanted to offer practices that had been really potent for me in my spiritual transformation and my expansion. But it felt like it was a little bit of a cheat not to give the kind of background of how these practices had worked for me in my life. I think a lot of times we read books that have practices, especially more spiritual books or yogic books that have talk about philosophy and the yoga sutras and different things that we can refer back to in the ancient texts, but they're not really underpinned by what happens in life, what happens in the messiness of life and being able to see how these practices can help us shift. So I'm not really somebody who likes to be kind of out there um, with my private life and I also think that there are many things that need to be held sacred because they hold the potency for us. But most of the stories that I'm sharing happened so long ago that I have a different perspective on them, which I think was really important to share. And I also think that they're relatable. So for me, it was an expanding into my own vulnerability. And I think that that's made me... Um, an even more powerful creator, um, a more powerful teacher. And um, that's why I wanted to be able to open uh, these doors that have really never been opened before in such a big way. Well, I loved them. And you had me crying hearing the little girl story of you on the bus. I feel like I could tear up just thinking about it because I felt the depth of the innocence that we each hold as children and how this world can be uh, so trampling. And I say this world, I mean the modern Western world, because that's kind of all I really know, but can be so trampling of the childhood innocence. And even like in your story, other kids um, mm -hmm. not being able to uh, love, honor, accept, right, that that beauty of that child. And I'm projecting my own idea of you because I didn't know you. <laughs> when you were young, but I could feel, <laughs> I could feel, um, mm. what I felt through your words was this beautiful, pure heart and, um, and resilience of a little girl who, mm. you know, was bullied in a particular moment. And it touches my heart cause I was bullied in particular moments too. And maybe mm. a lot of people, um, were on that end of the kind of, uh, that, that power dynamic, but I felt that it really anchored the teachings and the, the practices in to feel your heart. 
So as you mentioned that a lot of yogic books or the spiritual texts are more focused on the philosophy and that there's something to rooting it in lived experience. And I think about this a lot because I think about it as I think about it very much based on gender, to be honest, which not everyone may agree with. I think of it based on kind of this traditional, more patriarchal, for lack of a better word, uh, way of teaching or could be considered a more um, left brain way of teaching. And I have this my own philosophy around that there is a more archetypally feminine way of teaching that involves story, that involves heart, that involves linking into people's hearts and, and reaching out through that portal of emotion, which happened to me when I read this story in your book. And I'm curious what you think about that. Is that something that you've considered before? Um, why and how some spiritual teaching uh, is evolving or perhaps needs to evolve? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is um, a wonderful question to explore because for me, this teaching through this book and the sharing of personal stories to anchor in the philosophical ideas in my own understanding has definitely been an evolution and an expansion of my own teaching. I've been studying for over 28 years. I've been teaching for over 23 years. And the way that I learned these practices, the way that I learned the philosophy was definitely in a very patriarchal lineage system. And that lineage system was very much like you need to teach it the same exact way that you learned it, which is totally fine because that's how we have transmission. But there's also another way of learning, which is this embodiment of the teachings, the embodiment of the understanding of the wisdom of the philosophy as it weaves through your life and teaches you through life. And one of the things that I, I did notice over time is that while these philosophies and deep teachings were being shared, and I'm very grateful to the teachers who shared them with me, there was no reflection about their own lives and so there wasn't really an anchoring, as you just said, in the heart space. The anchoring was really more in the space of the intellect, of understanding from an intellectual way, but not in an embodied way. And one of the things that I think really propelled me also to be vulnerable and to share these stories, which some are funny and some are emotional, is that... I saw myself in so many students. I, I work with so many people as a mentor or as a teacher or as a coach. And there always seemed to be that one thing that people felt like they really wanted to move beyond. And so it was really important for me to illustrate how I was able to move beyond this moment of deep humiliation, shame, being bullied, which led to not wanting to be seen, being fearful of being successful, to being who I am today, and still continuing to work on myself. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think there is a beautiful natural evolution that many of us are a part of, 
um, taking it. And there's this great teacher, Richard Rudd, who created the Gene Keys, and he talks about it moving from worship to embodiment, right? Or moving to Mm -hmm. something being a teaching or a practice that's outside of you that you're sort of always kind of looking to the outside versus something that you deeply embody that is related to the inside of all of you. And I think about that a lot, you know, and, and in spiritual teachings, um, how we are living in a very different time, you know, um, and many of us are reclaiming our embodiment of that divine essence, which you talk about in your book of, you know, Atman and all of the things you use, all of the different terminology there. Um, I, I love that in your bio, you call yourself a post lineage teacher. And I want to know more about that. Where did that terminology come from for, for you? What does that mean for you? Mm. So post lineage, um, as I understand it was a a term that was coined by the teacher Theo Wildcraft. And they actually wrote a book. You can find it on Amazon. I believe that the book um, is from their dissertation. And they talk about this idea that I think is exactly what you're referring to, is this shift, right, in teachings. And for me, I can I can talk about what it means for me, and it definitely is informed by Theo Wildcraft's definition. But for me, post-lineage is that I we can say kind of grew up as a teacher in a spiritual lineage for many, many years, super grateful for all those practices. And those practices and those teachings are the foundation of what I understand and know yoga to be in my own life from my own limited understanding. At the same time, um, there are certain things that didn't work in that system because it was, it became hierarchical it became judgmental. It became harmful in certain ways. And what I think began to happen organically is that you have this beautiful sangha of friends and fellow students. You're all doing similar practices. And at some point, you start to begin to compare notes with your friends you start to compare and talk about experiences. You start to bring back, oh, why don't we look into this teaching? Or why don't, I I remember this teaching from my grandmother Mm. or from my indigenous tradition. And those things start to become shared. And when they become shared, a new teaching kind of arises just within the Sangha. Yeah. And then also for me, it's about connecting to the wisdom of my ancestors and connecting from the lands that I am from. And so that would be considered somewhat outside of the lineage of teaching, Mm -hmm. right? Even though when we look at these things, a lot of them are very similar. Right. So for me, when I say post-lineage, I think there was a time when I was in a more hierarchical space, right, of wanting my students to discover all of the beautiful teachers and teachings from my lineage, right? And now I'm really expanding that to find the teachings from your own spiritual lineages, find the teachings from your own ancestral lineages. And if you don't know what your ancestral lineage is, 
you know, do a DNA test and start doing something as simple as eating the foods mm -hmm. from your ancestors, right? Going back to the lands of your ancestors and then learning in that way. And so I think for me, it's just more expansive mm -hmm. being a post-lineage teacher is that, yes, I will refer to the teachings that are the foundation, but at the same time, the teaching is more expansive. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And coming from someone like you, who I can feel the integrity in your work and in your study, it makes sense. And it's interesting because I think on the other side, there are people who haven't invested nearly as much time and study and practice into their, um, their own personal practice and are teachers, you know, outside of a lineage, um, which I myself am, I'm, I'm not from one lineage I've studied in many. So I'm, you know, fall somewhere on this spectrum as well. And it's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting consideration because we want to break free from that paradigm of, we need to have a certain, you know, kind of official check mark of, a lineage or a school or something that validates our work in the world. So we want to break free from that. And on the flip side, there's also merit and structure in a teacher like you saying like, Hey, I have studied this for 20 years. I've practiced this for this long. It's a funny thing because you know, we have to go with our instincts or our intuition or our guts when we choose who we engage with, because some of that is really, um, in wh whoever's speaking its integrity. So we have to discern, right? Like if those mm -hmm. of us who are stepping outside of lineage and saying, Oh, I'm not going to just choose one lineage. I have my ancestral lineage, I have my yogic practices, I have my earth-based practices, etc. Those of us who are doing that, and then some people who may be out there teaching who took one class and, you know, it's like they're outside of a lineage too. Um, it's an interesting time, I think, of change. And is that something you've thought about? Oh, yeah, I think about it all the time. And I, I think one way to, you know, one of the things that our spiritual practice helps us with is discernment, yeah. right? And I think that one of the, the, the faults that we have in Western industrialized culture is that we want things to be convenient. We want them to be fast. We want them, we want it now. We don't take the time to kind of tune in to our own knowing as to, is this the, the teacher? Let me go a little bit deeper into maybe asking someone who's studied with this person before. Let me go online and look up to see, do I resonate? If they have a video online, do I resonate with the sound of their voice even? Do I resonate with their ideas and how they share? Um, so I think it really is important. And I think that if there are people out there that are listening, that are looking for teachers, one of the things that I always look for is the naming of where the teachings that you are sharing came from, mm. right? And so maybe there's this lineage or that lineage or this teacher that you learned from. Maybe you had a download while you were sitting in meditation in nature, right? 
And I think it's okay to name that, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think that there are, there are, um, teachers who have wisdom that are being born and being awakened in every moment. And it might not be happening in an ashram. It might be happening when you're sitting in front of a waterfall or you're watching a sunset. You know, that was my first initiation was not knowing anything about yoga, not knowing anything about meditation and sitting in a quiet moment and having this moment of just pure awareness descend on me. And that's what started my journey. So I think that discernment is something that needs to be developed, um, but we have to take time before we make a decision to jump into a training or to jump in with a teacher and not just want it quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. I loved that moment in your book where you were sitting in, was it South Africa? And and you had that moment. I'm just... It's important, I think, for people to hear that these moments of pure awareness or pure love can happen. They don't have to happen, like you said, like at a Vipassana retreat or an ayahuasca ceremony or on MGMA or whatever. They can happen in uh, these very seemingly mundane moments where we either allow enough spaciousness or, I don't know, there's probably a karmic something also to when those moments dawn in our lifetime, right? Like you can't really, I think, you can't really plan for it and you can't really, you could ask for it, you can pray for it, but I think also it's just really up to making the space and letting go. Yeah. Mm, The Um, space is the big thing, making the space, yeah. Yeah. I talked about that in my, my, my first book, I was like, you know, you can't schedule in a time between three and three thirty where, um, I'm going to invite the divine into my life, you know, doesn't work like that. I mean, um, it requires a lot, a lot more, I think, devotion and surrender to be graced by that, that touch of something, um, And that's why I think consistently we practice because practice is the space that we make, whether your practice is a tea practice or yoga or meditation or dance, but that's the space we make for whatever to happen to happen. Um, Anyway, (laughs) I love this quote, this (laughs) quote in your book um, where you say, as a culture, we can be obsessed with marking things off the to-do list that we believe will lead towards success and happiness and that we need a reframe. I love that, that just reminder. And I would love to hear you speak about that a little bit. Like, how do you see the culture, the current culture that we're in and what's the reframe that we need? Tell us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the current culture that we're in tells us that there's a way to do everything right? There's a way to go to school. There's a way to learn. You have to mark these things off the list to become successful. And it doesn't really allow for the space of our inner knowing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when we are in the space of doing, which is what the industrialized culture wants us to be, because when we're in the space of constantly doing, constantly searching for things outside of us, we are not able to get that space that you were just talking about, that spaciousness for devotion, that spaciousness for inner listening, that spaciousness for connecting to that part of us that knows. And instead, we're constantly on this rat race, right? 
people can refer to this as being in the grind. When you're in the grind, you're moving away from things that are in alignment for you, like rest, like prayer, like settling and listening. And it's not to say that you're supposed to just be resting all the time and not doing anything, but there's no kind of core um, thing that is a lot of times there's no core uh, energy or frequency that is guiding the doing. And so I was introduced to this practice um, that I call the do list uh, from a friend Charlie Morley, he's a lucid dreaming teacher, a former Buddhist monk. And this practice is a practice on impermanence, right? And it brings you down to the final moment of life and what you would do with that final minute of life. And what I found is that once I came to that final moment of my life, my word was love, Mm. right? And I've had a mind mapping practice for many, many years And I just thought, you know, if I make love the core essence of everything that I do, and I let go of anything that is not in alignment with that, then everything that I do has a different quality. It has a different frequency. Mm. I start to now move from this place of being in the Yanya yoga space of reading texts and memorizing things and understanding from an intellectual place to moving into this space of bhakti yoga, this place of the heart, this place of the divine feminine that wants to be in ritual and in devotion every moment. And what I learned from from doing that practice is that life can be a sacred ritual, that the divine can be weaved into everything. There's nothing that is mundane. There's everything, every moment is sacred. And if we see that, it changes the whole course of our life. It doesn't matter if you want to be the president of you know, a big corporation or you just want to be able to offer ritual to people in nature. Having that kind of core North Star will really shift the way that all of your relationships and all of the things that you do um, are received and and given. Yeah. I love that. I, there's so much truth, truth to that that I deeply resonate with. So one thing I wanted to ask you, which for those audience members that are listening, you've heard me engage with this question with a few different um, guests on the podcast. I think my friend Adriana Rizzolo, I don't know if you know her. uh, Yeah. yeah. um, She, I asked her a similar question, which is, and I'm sure I've asked someone else, I think my friend Moon also. So I have a lot of friends who study different forms of Tantra um, and none of them are Neo-Tantra. And I have tried to kind of introduce to my audience um, the spiritual depth and the true nature of what Tantra may mean, may, because I don't um, suppose to be an expert. Um, but I'm curious what it is to you. I, I really loved some of the way that you explained it in your book and it's funny. I still, still, I still have like a real kind of grumpiness about, um, how it resonates in the, in most people, even in like the spiritual community, how 
the the notion of what I believe it to be is still not caught up with the people. <laughs> so that's my own thing to deal with. But I'm curious for from you, how would you define it so that if there are spiritual seekers listening here today mm. that are like, what is Tantra? And like, why, why would I engage with it as a spiritual practice or philosophy um, that they could, they could get a little bit more discernment? Yeah, and that's a great question because there are so many uh, tantric teachers. There are so many things that are labeled as tantra. So it's a it's a wide it's a wide variety. Yeah. So the first two things that I would say is the idea of tantra means, as I understand it, to weave or to expand, right? And so we've already talked about this idea of weaving devotion and weaving ritual into your daily life. That's Tantra. Mm. We've already talked about this idea of what happens when you do these practices and you experience an expansion, right? You experience an expansion of your spiritual self, of who you know yourself to be. And what I would say and is that my understanding, and I think the a really clear way to think about this is that Tantra sees things as, as above, so below, mm-hmm. right? As is in the macrocosm, as is in the microcosm that we possess. And we know this now from science that everything that exists in the universe exists in our body, right? So if we think about the nadis, right? These these nadis that are rivers of light or meridians. We can think about all the rivers and all the tributaries that exist in, in the world. If we think about the left side nadi, which is that Ida nadi that is associated with the moon and nurturing and all of these kind of feminine cooling qualities, we have the moon inside of us. We have the sun inside of us on that pingala nadi, mm-hmm. right? Is that, that activation, that energizes It's said that we have this place inside of us that is the lotus of the heart, the cave of the heart, where there's this beautiful, sometimes people see it as a lake or a body of water with a beautiful lotus floating in it, right? So we can also think about the islands that are in the body that are the power vortexes that we know as the chakras that are each related to an element, So the idea of Tantra is, is that it's a lot harder to change the outer world, to change the outer experience, right? But what we can do with these Tantric practices, a lot of times that are Kriyas that include visualization, they include breath work, they include mantra, which is this sound that really helps to shift the quality of the mind and the quality of your experience, that if we shift our inner world, the outer world will then move into alignment with the inner world. Yeah. I love that. So it really is this way to be able to magnetize what you need and want and what is healing for you towards you and to understand yourself at a deeper level because you're understanding all these different parts of the universe that's within you. Mm. I love that's that's beautiful. Thank you for walking us through that. Um, the visual of that uh, internal world. Um, 
I love this quote that you gave from Sally Kempton in your book, who I had the pleasure of going on a few of her retreats um, and studying a little bit with her. And the quote that you listed is that which makes you fall is that which makes you rise. And I do feel like that is also um, really a principle of the tantric wisdom that I have learned or a part of it that I received that I did feel um, that you talked about in your book is that there is this element of stepping into the fire or, you know, facing the pain, the wound, um, the places, the psychic knots that you talked about. And I'm not sure if I'm saying that verbatim, but, uh, and that that is, I think a part of the tantric path that isn't, um, it isn't the sexy, it's not sexy. (laughs) I mean, it could be, but it's like, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's the deep fires. It's the purification. Um, I think for me, I've experienced a lot of that resonance with tantric teaching this life of the purification. Um, and it reminds me of a, a song by um, Bhagavan Das, who was uh, who first introduced mm-hmm. Ram Das to Neem Karoli Baba, and um, you know I saw him play like back in the day in New York City at like Jiva Mukti Yoga twenty years ago, and you know he's a real character. I don't know what he's up to these days. I hope he's still alive and well. Bless him. He he is. Yeah. I think he he's recovering from an illness, from what I remember. Okay. Yeah. But there's a song on, um, he has an album called uh, Prayers to the Dark Lord. And it's just like, take from me. He's singing to Kali and it's take from me. Yeah, all that I know. Is, yeah, well. okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like, take from me all take that, from me, is, not all that is not free. Yes. Yeah. And I think of that as like what I know of as tantric teaching and mm-hmm. um the not glamorous, sexy, like not, uh, there's nothing kind of, you know, um, Instagrammable about that, (laughs) about, (laughs) about facing your, you know, impurities. And I don't mean that in like a Judeo Christian kind of a way, even though it sounds like it, but facing your, your psychic knots or your, um, you know, whatever you want to call them obstacles to opening or awakening, um, that I feel like is, you know, is really at the core, which I'm so glad you talked about in your book. Thank you so much for that. Um, you know, that hearing that from Sally Kempton, who, um, for those who don't know, she recently left her body. Um, amazing teacher. It was just a moment of like a transmission. (laughs) It was like, ding, 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 ding. Oh, oh, okay. So I don't need to avoid these places that are tender. These places that are tender have been written about by Rumi. They've been talked about by Leonard Cohen. They've been talked about in so many different ways that this, the wounds that we have are really the ways in to our healing. They're the ways into our expansion. And I don't think that it's often taught in 
Western yoga, um, what you're talking about is, you know, these, these deep practices that are not sexy, they're not cute, and they can be very scary. And I, I thank teachers that have come into my life, like Laura Amazone, mm -hmm. who are not afraid to go into those tantric fires mm -hmm. with you, mm -hmm. right? And that's not the commercialized yoga, the commercialized tantra that we see, right? A lot of it is like much different. Yeah. Um, so yes, thank you for that. And, and for me, it was uh, the practices of vichara mm -hmm. that allow you to kind of go back in time on a timeline or just in your own memory to be able to remember the origins of the discomfort that I feel today. Where did that originate? And let me go into that space in order to heal. And this is, again, when we talk about the industrialized culture and the distraction of doing, this distraction of doing also affects memory. They don't want us to remember. Mm -hmm. So that's something we need to reclaim as well. Wow, that's that's super powerful, and it's a good reminder. And when I saw that practice in your book, that's like, okay, write down your kind of preferences or the things that you don't like, and da da da, and then trace back to the why or the where. I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, but but I I have permission to not like some stuff, right? And um, my partner is my partner is really good at kind of doing that practice with me in real time. <laughs> And I say, stop, I'm bringing that to therapy. I don't want to bring it here. <laughs> but if I go into a place of fear, um, let's say I don't, you know, I don't really like heights so much. It's, it's almost been a recent thing. I don't know why, but if I did the practice, I would probably figure out why, but there'll be these moments where, you know, he looks at me and he's like, okay, well, you know, are we going to walk towards that and face that? And I like to give myself this little excuse, but I'm allowed to not like things, but I'm allowed to have some things that I'm not good at or I don't want to do, right? <laughs> I'm good at all this other stuff. I, I can face all these other fears. Um, but it it is interesting to consider, well, what if we did and if I did write those things down and really sit and consider it? Um, yes, perhaps with a trusted therapist, but you can do a lot of it on your own as well. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's good to have the support. And this is where Sangha comes in yes. and where having a great therapist comes in. And, and, I, and also in relationship, it's funny that you are talking about in relationship because my beloved and I would always get into these arguments around the kitchen and kind of the way he liked to have it organized and the way I was organizing it. <laughs> and I would get so triggered and I was like, you know what? I need to do a Vichara practice around this. And when I went through the Vichara practice, I got to the moment where I remembered, again, this is about remembering, that part of my punishment as a kid was that if I didn't do something the way it was supposed to be done, that my job would be to clean the kitchen. So this cleaning of the kitchen was associated with punishment, oh. with doing something wrong. Mm. 
And once I was able to unravel that for myself, I then needed to share it Mm. with him so that he could understand and be sensitive to it. And it completely shifted. Wow. Yeah, it seems so simple, but you're right. There's so much that we don't really remember. We kind of maybe have a little like "Mm," tendril, but we don't think about it deeply. And then when you do approach it consciously and you really sit with it, I think, yeah, you can experience a little bit of um, illumination around the why. So that practice, that that's a deep, deep practice, I think, to consider from your book. Um, There, I like how you talk about the five subtle layers of the body. And when I hear people talk about the self, like me and myself, or like I'm doing this practice or uh, you know, for my embodiment, like I, I experience a lot of what I read as kind of confusion or like lopping everything into one. And something that Mm -hmm. I like to do with my students is really to remind them to delineate which body they're working with. Mm -hmm. So I love Mm -hmm. that, um, that you presence that in your book. And I'm just wondering if you could share with us here, when you are teaching about the body or the bodies, how do you speak to that? So people don't just go into the assumption that we're always talking about the physical body. Mm, That's really good. I love that. So one of the things that I always make sure that I do when people come into training, especially training around yoga nidra, right? Cause we're, we're generally thinking about that as resting the body is that we have an understanding of the koshas. So subtle body is always included in, in that, in that learning. Um, I think though that for me, at least I can talk, speak about myself is that I had no understanding that there was anything other than the physical body. When I first came to yoga, when I first came to yoga, it was literally because of the, uh, like, I want to become stronger. I'm, I'm hunching over. I want to be able to stand up straighter, whatever the things are. It was all related to the body. All was, it was all related to the body. And I think that if we think about our experience in yoga practice or in dance or in meditation, that we can all maybe touch into a moment where we felt like, oh, I almost don't feel the body. Mm. I almost feel like I can't tell where my body ends and the floor begins. Mm. Or I feel so expansive. Or I just feel like there's something more that I am Mm. that I can't explain. And I think that if we all think about that moment that we might have felt that or just had a glimpse of it, then we realize that we're affecting more than just the body. Yeah. Right. At some point we become maybe aware that there is energy moving through the body. Yeah. Maybe we become aware of our thoughts. Maybe we touch into some wisdom that seems like it came out of nowhere which is one of, I love the, one of the definitions of Vignaya Maya Kosha, which is often called the wisdom body or the intuitive body Mm. is that Vignaya means to drop out of nowhere. Mm. That's one of the 
translations. Mm. And that's been my experience, right? Like something comes in, it's like, I wasn't thinking about this. I was, but, oh, I have a knowing all of a sudden. And then this idea of the bliss body where maybe we felt this immense expansion, pure awareness. And there's a teacher, um, Richard Miller, who talks about this Ashmita kosha, which is the kosha of the ego that's even beyond the bliss body, which is still that place within us that says, I am having this experience. Yeah. Right. And so once that is released, then we're, we're just merged with source. Yeah. Yeah. So there's many different things that are being affected. And I think we, we don't know until we know, until we have that embodied experience. To me, that's another example of the yanya yoga of yes i can we can talk about the five layers of the koshas but but now that you know them when you have that experience in yoga nidra or you have that experience in your spiritual practice then you can remember this conversation and start to maybe do a little bit more study around the koshas right but when you feel it in your body you know that something beyond the body you are something beyond the body beyond this physical shell and that is really the luminous self that is the the place within you that is always eternal that was there before you had a name will be there when you no longer have a body yeah and is connected to everything and everywhere yeah that that's that's what we that's that's the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. I love that and I love I love the luminous self as that place and um I think of it as like the symphony and I, I I'm not sure if if the yogic teachings you know, consider it in that way necessarily but harmony that we're creating within these different layers of the body and when I teach I talk about from some of my teachers, the emotional body as being one space, um, and the spiritual and the mental. And then I, I kind of throw in the sensual, even though that comes from a different teacher than the other ones, (laughs) um, and helping people, helping the, the, the students that I work with to really have an awareness and a differentiation so that if they're walking through life, always identifying with their mental body, that they can become aware of that. Oh, I'm always identified with my thoughts, or I'm always identified with my emotions, or I'm always identified with my physical sensations. I'm hungry. I'm tired. You know, obviously these things change moment to moment, but, um, I, the practice of, Finding is the wrong word, but I'm going to use it (laughs) of finding the spiritual body or the luminous self, that practice, and then not transcending the emotional body, mental body, right? Physical body, not just getting so hyper-focused on that, you know, bliss body or luminous or spiritual body that you forget about the other. I think that's embodiment to me. It's like when there's a a harmony and a coming together, which, you know, I hear people talk about embodiment as just a, an asana practice. Cool. Like, you know, or a dance practice. And yes, that's one form of it. But to me, the, the, the spiritual practice is when we're, 
we're creating this harmonious place where all those layers are coming together and working together and we have an awareness around them. So we're not taken on a ride by one. Yeah, that, that is a beautiful, um, description of the harmony. I definitely feel to me, I experience it as a revealing, you know, I feel like we can go back to the Bhagavan Das song, right? Is that whatever is happening in my practice, if I'm asking for, take from me all that is not free, take from me all that is not real, take from me all that is not who I really am. When that starts to drop, then we're actually able to be in those spaces of, oh, this is what my energy feels like. I have a frequency and I can experience my frequency that is in harmony And if I can experience that frequency, then I can also notice that when I'm not in harmony and I can remember what are the practices that help me to come back into harmony because they're going to be different for me every season. They're going to be different for me every day, but the more tools that I can acquire, the more remembering that I can do, then I have agency to bring myself back into harmony. Yeah. I love that. I love that. The revealing. That's beautiful. So a life geared towards this, what we're talking about versus a life geared towards the like major doing, being successful, like people in the past did it at ashrams or like outside of the village, outside of the community. What would make anyone listening here today? Like, potentially be like, I want to choose that because it's very different though. They do cross intersect and all of that, but it's very different to consider your perspective on life being here, what you're using this life force for as being what we're talking about towards mm-hmm. practice or towards acquiring as much money and, and things and, and accolades and all of that, what would inspire someone to go, you know what? I think I'm going to consider that road. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) So, you know, what I would say is I was, I was on this road of success. I was very successful. I was making a lot of money and I was also practicing yoga. Thank God. And I was also teaching yoga at the same time. One of the things that I noticed um, in my work with people who were very wealthy, very famous, is the level of unhappiness. And so I was able to see, oh, wait a second, there's a lot of financial abundance, but there is an extreme amount of spiritual poverty. There's an extreme amount of fear that it could all be taken away if this next movie doesn't work. And that the identity was wrapped up in the success of the film, being all about who you were. And so what I would ask people to do as they're in this inquiry that you just dropped on us is... Spend a few moments, minutes, days, or even weeks to define what is success. Mm. 
What do you want to feel when you're successful? What do you want the people around you to feel? Is success having all the things? And then what happens when the things get lit on fire? Are you still successful? What is happiness? What is true wealth? Those are things that only we can define for ourselves. And then once you define that, maybe asking, where do these definitions of success and wealth come from? And are they yours or are they inherited from the industrial culture or are they inherited from family? How do they feel when you say them out loud in your body? Do you feel that harmony in your energetic body, in your emotional body, in your intuitive body? Where is it resonating? And this is, to me, the constant practice of of yoga, is the constant inquiry, the constant self-study, the constant being able to sit with what might be uncomfortable, knowing that it's a portal to our healing. So those would be the questions that I would pose because my definition of success is going to be different than someone else's. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it feels like if you were to march into any kind of grocery store in the middle of America and say, Hey, my life is geared towards harmonizing and revealing my luminous self, you know, like that, that's still, would sound crazy to a lot of people. And yet there are, we're not alone. It's not just you and me on this path, on these similar paths. There are many people that have made the courageous, I'm going to call it courageous. Okay. It doesn't have to be, but I'm going to call it courageous that have made the courageous leap away from that conditioned mainstream industrialized, as you said, lifestyle to, making space for depth, for practice, for healing, Mm -hmm. for study. Um, And I do feel it takes courage because the mainstream of that industrialized world is still so, it's a powerful energetic uh, river that if you kind of start falling asleep or numbing out, you can kind of get swept back into practice keeps us, I think, awake. Um, so if we feel ourselves, you know, kind of slipping into the, that, that hole, then we can go, Oh wait, remind myself to wake up again. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, there, we have our basic needs that need to be met. Of course. Right. We're living in, in a place where not everybody has the same advantages, right? Because of systemic oppression. But at the same time, I think that definition, we have to answer it. And it's, and it, it shouldn't be answered with shame, right? If success means I want to have, you know, X amount of money, I want to be able to care for my family. But do I also want, how do I want to feel in that success is really an important question to answer. Yeah. Um, and I do think that it's possible to have financial success and not be spiritually impoverished. Yeah. But your focus needs to be, in my opinion, and from what I've seen, 
that you are not the things you own. You are not your accolades. You are not your uh, bank account number because that's where we get, I think, into trouble and where sadness and despair can really start to uh, affect our lives if that if we believe that that's who we are. We are beyond name and we are beyond form, hmm. ultimately. That's a beautiful distinction and I think a good reminder that it's not about, hey, it's more spiritual if you, you know, renounce ABC, that that's not the times we're living in either or the lifestyle. No, you know, no. Well, we're not renunciates. No. You know, if we were renunciates, we would be living in a cave somewhere doing practice and someone would be bringing us chai and food three times a day. We're householders. And, you know, I wrote about this in, in my first book, The Radiant Rest, um, about bringing in this idea of the householder flow. Like, how can you weave these practices into your life, knowing that you have responsibilities, knowing that you have to have a job, knowing that you have a family, and being able to be responsible for all those things. And it goes back to what you said earlier. I'll pull the thread of the spaciousness is finding time, whether it's two minutes, 10 minutes or a half an hour, the moment to pause and find spaciousness to find the harmony. Yeah. To reintegrate. It doesn't take very long. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to be, uh, materially rich or in a position of privilege to hold a a sacred thread. You know, I've seen it everywhere around the world in my travels Mm -hmm. that there are people that hold that sacred heart and that thread of devotion, um, in all different lifestyles, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, it's been so great talking to you. I'm so just, uh, grateful for your, wisdom and your depth and your practice and bringing that to this community, truly the, the energy of a spiritual teacher and an author who practices what they preach. It's really, it's very much felt. I appreciate that reflection. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, is there anything you want to say in terms of things that may be coming up in the new year that you can speak to now? Yeah. So in the new year, um, I have a couple of things happening. Uh, I will be doing a rest and create writer's retreat at Ghost Ranch in New Mexico. I will be doing a rest, dream and play retreat in Costa Rica with my dear sister, Chanti Takarante Perez. And yoga nidra training is always happening. There's a live five-day yoga nidra immersion uh, that will be happening in Menla. And then our online 108-hour yoga nidra training um, starts in March. Awesome. Beautiful. Awesome. Those all sound incredible. And um, I hope people will join and also buy both of your books and read both of your books, the first one and the second one just take in your wisdom. Thank you so much for your time today, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me, Alexandra. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I want to offer you some questions for contemplation 
integration and writing if you wish. The first one is to consider, was there something in today's episode that touched you or moved you or triggered you? An image, an idea, a story? Take a moment and just think about it. Is there anything that provoked you, that reached inside of you, that perhaps brought up a memory or an idea from your life? What in this episode inspired you? Was there something that surprised you, that stood out for you? Could you jot it down just to remember? Maybe it was a concept or something that the guest said that took you by surprise, but that uplifted you, that brought you to some new awareness. Was there something about this episode that upset you, that provoked you, that pissed you off? Giving yourself full permission to dive into that. Was there anything about this episode that soothed your soul, that helped you feel a little bit more belonging, a little bit more at home, a little bit less like you're the only one? Taking those questions into your heart or into your journal or into your day. If anything stood out that you want to share with me, please do so on social media, direct into my DMs. I would love to hear what touched you, what moved you, and what you're taking from this time together. And if this episode truly inspired you in some kind of way, share it with a friend, like, subscribe, and write a review. It means a lot to me. Thank you. So happy you're here with me, daring to feel.